if I buy something in credit, I owe that person whatever I borrowed, right? So like, mm-hmm. I think like whether that's deflated, inflated, whatever you want to say about the actual money itself, I still owe it. And I think we have a fiscal responsibility that if we're taking taxpayer dollars to do whatever initiatives that we have, whatever convictions we have, we should be able to obviously repay that or at least service that debt correctly. Now, granted, like by the grace of God, we have not defaulted on our debt, right? Here in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that has some serious implications long-term. Do I think that inflation helps with the overall day? Is that a good strategy? I don't know. I just, I feel like, hey, I swiped my card when I went to buy, you know, whatever, a gift for my wife. You know, I need to pay that back. You know what I mean? Exactly what I borrowed, right? And so those are my personal convictions. Do I think that inflation does play a role in maybe like minimizing the impact of the debt? Sure, it is devaluing it, but we just can't print money and get ourselves out of this problem. That just doesn't work in any situation whatsoever. Yeah, in the real world, there's going to be a consequence to this. Yeah, for sure there's a consequence. Yeah. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Leo Ansoliaga. He is from Washington, D.C., and I've had him on in the past. And I like chatting with Leo because he's got insights on everything to do from CPI, interest rates, predictions on that. We talk about a whole bunch of topics and I absolutely love chatting with Leo because he's extremely articulate and knowledgeable. We talk about CPI, we talk about how GDP affects, you know, what effect would that have if we can see GDP growth, look at debt, employment numbers, we talk about economy, supply, and just all around mortgages and real estate from the U.S. perspective. And if you're a Canadian listener, you know that everything from the U.S. actually eventually comes to Canada anyway. So if you want to get a sense of what's coming down the pipe, this conversation with Leo should be very insightful for you. Also, in this episode, I talked to Ben McCabe from Bloob on the top five reasons a reverse mortgage would be declined. Before we jump into that, let me give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform designed specifically for Canadian borrowers. It's very easy to use and it's got some cool features like smart docs. So as you get ready to hit submit to the lender, it actually pulls key data to make the notes clear, concise, so that your lender can give you an approval faster. It's also connected to the lender spotlight, which is the best tool for searching rates and guidelines. And when you go to hit submit, it actually pulls up and says, hey, don't forget about XYZ because it actually sees Lender Spotlight and it's talking to it and your application. It's a fantastic tool. Check it out at lendesk.com slash Finmo uh, and check out this conversation with Leo. Hey, Leo, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, hey, before we jump into a bunch of topics we're going to talk about, which I'm excited about interest rates and CPI and economy and stuff, maybe just give us a quick, anybody who didn't listen to your last time that we've had you on the podcast, who are you, where are you from, a little bit of background, and then we'll jump into it. Yeah, my name is Leon Soliaga. I'm the Senior Vice President at Apex Home Loans. We practice real estate primarily in the DC metropolitan area, but our bank, an independent mortgage bank, is licensed in, I believe it's 48 states as of now. I've been doing this for 20 years. My wife and I reside, my kids as well, reside in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And, you know, just like you, man, I love mortgages, right? So, like, I really enjoy this industry. Right. Okay. So, the last time we chatted, we had a fantastic discussion about, it was technical, but and I like these technical discussions yeah. because we need to understand it if we're going to be good at our job. So, maybe talk to me about what's been happening with interest rates in the U.S. and what your kind of expectations are. I'm in Canada. We've got listeners in both. But whatever happens there is always going to affect us. Like we're very much influenced by not only your fashion and music, but also interest rates and all these other things. So talking about that. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. I mean, I think the last time that we spoke, we talked a little bit about history. And so I want to maybe touch a little bit on that. 
and they sure. kind of give us an update. So, you know, over the last four years or so, especially in 2019, you know, interest rates had come down to historic lows. I mean, the pandemic played a massive role in seeing interest rates on a 30-year fix. I mean, really get to down to the two and three quarter range, right? And so a huge demand of new buyers coming into the marketplace, obviously bringing you know, prices up for a span of about two years or so. But right around October of 2021, we started to see interest rates go up. And right? one of the things that we talked about in our last conversation was the reason behind that, and that's inflation, right? So inflation yeah. is the arch enemy of mortgage bonds. So as inflation started to rise, interest rates followed, right? And a lot of people and a lot of consumers, I can tell you definitively because I've spoken to all of them, right? The majority of them in our marketplace, you know, were thinking that it rates were going to come back down at some point, but quite the opposite happened. I mean, in January of 22, rates started to go up and it started to go up pretty, pretty fast, right? And so mm -hmm. a lot of people were priced out of that market. In other words, rates were just too high, right? And we bottomed out right around October of 22 in terms of that trading session, and rates reached, I mean, a peak into the high sevens, right? And so we've climbed back since then. You know, I think, again, inflation is the biggest driver here. And as the feds have been increasing the Fed funds rate to try to tame inflation, you know, that's obviously slowed down the overall economy. And one of the things that I said in the previous podcast was, you know, a recession typically equates to lower mortgage rates, right? Because there's this concept called flight to safety, where money right. comes out of, you know, riskier investments to safer investments like bonds and treasury. So little by little, we started to see interest rates, you know, come down. And at the end of December or so, beginning of January, rates started to, you know, get down to the high sixes and eventually got down to the mid sixes and, you know, the low sixes. And so it's been a very interesting market because even just the last week alone, we're kind of back up to the seven mark, right? So what I've been telling consumers and kind of what I've been observing is that they really are not out of it just completely yet. I think inflation is driving this entire market, but I really do believe the rates are going to come down at some point in the next quarter. You know, some estimates yeah. show that May 10th is kind of that one turning point, that date that we're going to see. You think that it'll be a rate cut or just the pause hike? So what do you think will happen? Yeah, so great question. So one of the things I said last time is that a lot of people think that as the Feds increase the Fed funds rate, that's what's driving interest rates to go up. That's actually quite the opposite. The Feds are increasing the Fed funds rate to slow down inflation. How are they doing that? They're taking money out of the system, right? Slowing us down, right? And that's causing, obviously, a recession, for one. Mm -hmm. and then the instruments, stocks are obviously, you know, taking that money and putting it into safer investments, right? Investors are literally shifting their philosophy and putting it in, the, in a much safer investment. And that buying pressure of bonds is what causes rates to come down, right? And so I really do believe that the Feds are going to continue their hikes. I mean, they haven't really shown any type of like indication that that's going to stop. My hope is that they don't necessarily prolong this way too much because we don't want to overcook this either, right? But I really do think that CPI as the core measure of inflation, as we start to see the year-over-year -year numbers come down, I think rates are going to fall right behind that. Right. And so let's talk about CPI next. That's the next thing I wanted to talk about. So where yeah. where is it at? So let's assume somebody is like, in, this is a terrible example. They've been in a coma. They're a mortgage broker for six months, but they woke up and they're totally healthy with no muscle atrophy. And they're like, hey, what's going on with CPI? Tell me what has been happening with CPI in the last little bit and what are you seeing? Yeah. So in essence, you know, CPI, the core measure of inflation measures, essentially, we kind of strip food and energy from that, right? And we kind of see, okay, what is inflation doing overall in the overall market? And 
you know, the annual core rate of CPI right now is 5.6%, right, year over year, as of the ending of, I think it's January of 23, the last reading. And so the driver here has been the year over year reading that we've been seeing go up because of the lower readings that we've had in previous months in the previous year. As that's been balancing out, right, the CPI numbers have been dropping, right? But, okay, we have not really seen a complete shift in terms of overall interest rates because we have not caught up, right, to those numbers. And so there's a lot of components there, housing being one of them, right? Rents being another one. But all that to say, what's been interesting to see has been the overall reading very slowly, you know, take down, which just tells us something very important, which is simply this, that the hikes itself that the feds have put in place are working, right? So we are slowing mm-hmm. the overall economy, stripping money out of the system. And thus, hopefully, interest rates should follow here in the next few months. Well, I personally am in a variable rate mortgage in Canada. And so every time Fed raises rates, usually the Bank of Canada raises rates, which affects my mortgage rate, yep. mortgages rates. And so I am like, dang it, stop raising rates. But I feel like right now I'm playing chicken with a Mack truck and I'm like, I'm not blinking. I'm staying variable all the way, baby. And I'm just like, wait. Or remember the Braveheart movie where they're like, hold. And hold, waiting, hold, hold. Yeah. hold. That's what I'm doing. I was like, do not lock in. Do not lock in. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, hopefully that will pay off in the next six months. Let me ask you about like, so CPI obviously is starting to stall a little bit. How does employment play into this? Like, so the employment numbers. So we saw rates come down here in Canada a little bit briefly. And then the, the employment numbers came out. They were like, oh, wow, we're making a lot of jobs. And then the rate that seemed to affect the bond market, at least this is in Canada, this is my rookie understanding of this. And we saw them start to go back up again. So is that something that you're paying attention to in the US? And if so, what do they look like? Yeah, yeah. So funny you say that. Uh, last week, the employment numbers came out better than expected, right? And so the interesting thing to me is this, right? Any good news for the overall economy usually equals bad news for bonds, right? Because bonds are obviously safer investment than stocks, right? Et cetera. And so last week, I, I actually did a quick story on Instagram about this in a video explaining that, hey, just because the employment numbers were better than expected and the most recent report, interest rates went up, right? Um, we kind of got back up to that, you know, 6.875, range. And we've been dancing around that entire wave, right? Like, and we're going to continue, I would argue probably for the next, you know, couple of months or so until we get into the spring and, and summer months. So yeah, unemployment rates, you know, do play a role in the overall economy, but believe it or not, it's actually any good news for that particular sector equates to bad news for bonds and rates. And rates, yeah. So good news for the economy is bad news for interest rates. So every time we hear good news, oh, growth, this and that. A question I don't know if I've asked you about before, but I've been listening to other podcasts and this guy had said, I think it was Peter Thiel, who's a billionaire guy, one of the PayPal founders. And he talked about that if GDP was high enough that it would solve a lot of problems. So do you pay attention to that, the GDP? And how does that play into inflation as well as sort of stuff that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, growth itself, I think it's important, right? So I think as the economy continues to grow, that's obviously... I think rates being higher, I would argue, is a good thing overall because it gives us a really good indication in terms of how the system is actually working, right? And so I think what the feds are trying to do here is saying, hey, there's just too many dollars in the secondary market. We need to strip this out and slow down the overall economy. Do I think growth is important long-term? Of course. I think one of the biggest concerns that I have personally as I look at you know, GDP, as I look at the overall indicators is the amount of debt that we have that's out there, right? The amount of debt that we right. need to pile up. That's probably one of my biggest concerns. I mean, I haven't gotten a chance to listen to Peter Thiel's um, 
you know, thoughts on this, but I think what he's saying is like, yeah, growth overall for the overall economy is good for the country. And I would argue the world economy as a whole, how that plays out with debt. I mean, man, I don't know. I mean, in my household, you know, I can't have a credit card bill, you know, like that's, you know, higher than what I'm taking home. That just doesn't work. You know, where is right. the real growth there then, right? I'm just servicing debt on a monthly right. basis. So yes, to his point, but I would also argue, hey, what about the overall debt deficit or the overall debt that we are carrying on our books? That's probably one of the biggest things that I'm watching as well. Right. I'd heard a guy once say that the way we deal with the debt problem is actually through inflation. So if imagine you owe $500,000, but if $500,000 is not what it used to be, being a millionaire was a thing. Now it's like, I mean, it's still a thing, but it's not like a million dollars is not what it was 20, 30 years ago. Like a million dollars does not go as far. So one way to deal with the massive debt problem is through inflating, making the value of the 500000 or whatever you owe less. And so what are your thoughts on that? And it feels like there's pain no matter which way we go with this. There's going to be, it's kind of like we're taking some medicine that we need, but that none of us are going to be like, yay, this is like Buckley's. It tastes awful, but it works. It's like, I feel like that's a little bit what we're going through right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have some personal thoughts about that. And I'll give you kind of like my personal convictions on there, right? If I buy something in credit, I owe that person whatever I borrowed, right? So like, mm -hmm. I think like whether that's deflated, inflated, whatever you want to say about the actual money itself, I still owe it. And I think we have a fiscal responsibility that if we're taking taxpayer dollars to do whatever initiatives that we have, whatever convictions we have, we should be able to obviously repay that or at least service that debt correctly. Now, granted, like by the grace of God, we have not defaulted on our debt, right? Here in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that has some serious implications long-term. Do I think that inflation helps with the overall day? Is that a good strategy? I don't know. I just, I feel like, hey, I swiped my card when I went to buy, you know, whatever, a gift for my wife. You know, I need to pay that back. You know what I mean? Exactly what I borrowed, right? And so those are my personal convictions. Do I think that inflation does play a role in maybe like minimizing the impact of the debt? Sure. It is devaluing it, but we just can't print money and get ourselves out of this problem. That just doesn't work in any situation whatsoever. Yeah, in the real world, there's going to be a consequence to this. Yeah, for sure, there's a consequence. Yeah, I agree. And interesting. Okay, so what about supply? So what have you noticed with supply? And before we turn to the recorder, there was one thing that you said that I thought was interesting is the folks that have these low interest rate mortgages that maybe they've outgrown their property. They want to move. And yeah. they could even qualify to buy the other place. But they're like, dang, I'm going to be trading this for that. So tell me about that. And then just supply in general. Yeah. Yeah. So great point. So one of the things that we're dealing with right now, and we started dealing with this, you know, during the pandemic, you know, you have sellers that, you know, probably have life changes, right? They have a family that's growing. They have kids, you know, that perhaps, you know, need more room, right? Looking before the pandemic to perhaps, you know, grow or invest in a new property. But, you know, when you refinance a mortgage and now you have a rate in the twos, right? Mm -hmm. The economy starts to change, rates start going up and now you're in the sevens. I mean, you pause, right? And you're like, man, that's a big delta. That's a big gap. I think we can manage here. Yes, we're busting at the seams here. Yes, you know, you guys are sharing one bathroom, but, you know, the delta here on a monthly basis, the overall interest is just way too much. So what is that doing for supply? Well, it's causing a lot of people to hesitate, right? To hesitate to list their properties, right? It's causing a lot of people to hit pause on selling the unit and obviously affecting, you know, potential buyers. Now we have, you know, less inventory, you know, out there for resale and more buyers that are available. So here's a kind of a really interesting stat. There are 14 million more households, okay, being formed and almost 3 million fewer homes available for sale. Now this is nationwide, okay? Why is that? Well, back in the 1980s, there was a huge boom of births. A lot of people were born in the 1980s and they held off longer to invest in real estate, okay? 
And they started investing in real estate in late 2019. Pandemic hits, rates come down, less people are selling their homes, more people are looking to buy, okay? And that has carried over as interest rates started to rise. So hopefully, you know, once we see, you know, rates come down, and I would argue once we get to that 5% mark, high fours, a lot of the sellers are going to start to say, okay, that delta or that gap, not so big. And not so painful. I can actually correct. make the move, right? Correct. We have the pain of like, of stomaching that versus the dissatisfaction, you know, of being in this house will be outweighed. So that's, that's an interesting study, I think, as we kind of start looking at the spring and summer markets. Right. So existing low rates are also choking out supply to some degree because it's like, ah, you're like, you're like, you say, we're just going to suck it up. And even if it's psychological, because sometimes we don't make decisions rationally. We think we do. I think we make them with emotion and then justify with logic. That's been my way of thinking. So another question I want to ask you about supply. So like, what have you seen with prices? So have prices, especially in your market, I'm sure you're an expert in your own market, but have you seen prices come down? Are they about the same? What are you noticing? It depends on the price point, right? It depends on the actual price point and depends also on the type of property. So I would argue in that high density areas, especially properties that have elevators, okay? Condos, for example, it's still a little softer in the marketplace right now, okay? The pandemic literally played a role with that, right? But I mean, the single families, the townhouse or the detached properties, I mean, they're seeing multiple offer situations. Last week, you know, we won a deal. I mean, we were one of 19 properties in the $575,000 range. Okay? You mean 19 offers? On 19 one offers property. on the house, yeah, on the one property, yeah, yeah. right? So like most people didn't think that was gonna be possible again. Well, again, when you have a lack of supply, Okay. And buyers that have been sitting on the sidelines waiting for rates to come down. Pent up demand. Yeah. Yep. Pent up demand. Right. That's a perfect storm. And so I would argue that nationwide, you know, are we going to see the numbers that we saw in 2020, 2021? Probably not. I mean, 30, 40 offers in some cases, but I would argue that there's going to be at least multiple offer situations in the majority of the markets. Right. So that basically you're saying it is like property type specific. So the single family home is more desirable and mm -hmm. potentially than the condo. And we've seen that even here in Toronto, like the condo market is definitely softer than others. You know, one of the things I think about, there's two things I want to ask you about, which maybe you can touch on. One is the effect that, you know, things like Airbnb has had on real estate because, you know, every Tom, Dick and Sally is like, oh, I can buy this condo and I can make 300 bucks a night. And that has been not working out as well because like my own market, we had an Airbnb that we rolled out last year. It was a terrible time to do it. Like there's so much inventory that came on. There literally was, you know, 50% more properties available for Airbnb. So then some of these that made sense, the purchase price of that condo made sense when you could do something like that with it. So that's the first question. Then the second question I want to talk about is some of these like real estate trust companies that go in and buy up large chunks of real estate and have they been still doing that? So let's talk about the Airbnb impact. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you this, you know, the Airbnb laws in some high density areas, I think have really put a lot of pressure on a lot of investors that are big on Airbnb, like DC, for example. I mean, the tenant laws there, I mean, there are some very big restrictions in terms of like, you know, what properties you can be rented out. I mean, you know, how long can you have those properties rented? Have I seen that to get a little softer? Yeah, I mean, boots on the ground. Absolutely, right? You haven't seen the record numbers that we saw in 2019, 2018, et cetera. And I would argue, I mean, I haven't seen the reports from Airbnb directly, but I would argue that's probably affecting them also, right? But funny thing you bring up in terms of like institutions, like investing in real estate, like what does that tell us about the market? I've been talking about this for a few months, right? You got to follow the money, right? Like, you know, a lot of people have been calling for the housing crash, you know, probably 10 times since 2000. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right? Like, and yet institutions like the big institutions out there, I mean, are, are literally 
putting on tranches on the side to be able to go and invest in single family development projects, new construction, right? They're literally putting money in the things that a lot of people are saying that it's probably a bad investment. So to answer your question, what does that tell us? I think you got to follow the money, right? A lot of people are going to poo-poo the overall market because that gets us clicks for them to come to our website. But if you yeah. simply just look at the investors, man, like these people are literally not small amount. I mean, a hundred million dollars, if I'm not mistaken, for JP Morgan Chase recently, that's going to yeah. be set aside to just go and start investing in some of these blocks. I mean, that should tell you something in terms of where the housing market is going. Right. And that they see it still as a buying opportunity. So yeah, the thing about the Airbnb that I think if you look at the arc of it over the last, you know, since they sort of last three or four, maybe five years, is that it was extremely lucrative for the first entries. Like a lot of things when you first get into it, it's extremely lucrative. People are like, oh, this is great. More people find out about it. Of course, it creates more competition, but also it creates chaos in the community where people are like frustrated. Hey, I'm annoyed by these neighbors changing every day. And then they start to complain to the local governing bodies. Then new regulation comes in, which then makes it more difficult. Like when I was in Vegas, I actually thought, oh, it'd be great to have an Airbnb in Vegas. You can't have one in Vegas. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, man, you could print money. Of course, the hotel mafia down there has shut that down. They're like, there's no chance. You know, the MGM with 6,000 rooms is going to let somebody rent out their apartment mm -hmm. in Vegas. And so regulation has also affected the ability for investors to make money from some of these properties that they were making money from. So like an Airbnb property. And then like in BC, anyway, I'm curious how it is that where you are, but the tenant laws are so slanted towards the tenant that it's almost not worth it to have long-term yeah. tenants. Like they can move in, they can trash the place and not pay it. And you kind of, they treat you like you are somehow the criminal by being the owner and yeah. getting them out. And so that's also pushed more people into short-term rentals because they're like, at least if I got a pain in the ass tenant, they're there for a week and they're gone versus have you seen that where you are or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I echo exactly what you say, especially in some of these high density areas, you definitely have exactly what you're saying. So like, look, innovation, I think is great for the overall economy. Airbnb has really disrupted the hotel industry, okay? Well, how do you hold on to people just like you and me trying to tap into this marketplace, right? Well, regulations, right? Like you're gonna literally make it extremely hard for me to rent my condo downtown temporarily for the inauguration, right? You're going to make yeah. it difficult for me to do things. And so have I seen more of that? Yeah, I've seen some of that. And I can tell you definitively in the city specifically, that's been a hot topic that's been discussed over the last few months. Right. Okay. One other question. I don't know if you know much about this or I'd still have your thoughts on is the whole iBuyers. So these, you know, real estate companies that were like, hey, you can't sell your house. We'll buy it for you. And then we'll resell it. Well, a lot of them have got caught with a ton of inventory in a declining market. And so what are your thoughts on the whole iBuyer? I mean, I'm not that smart, but I was watching that going, at some point, if you're sitting on all this inventory, like it may not be ideal, but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, it's a great point because I would argue, most people wanna like replace, right? The people in any type of industry, like the advice piece that is. I think technology does a great job of replacing commodity. And if you're a commodity, you need to be removed from the equation as quickly as possible, right? So technology exposes them. But people that actually have advice, people that are boots on the ground that actually are knowledgeable. And let me tell you, man, like some of the real estate professionals that I surround myself, the people that I know, these people are moving the inventory. So 20% of the agents are moving 80% of the inventory in this area. So knowing those people, those individuals is extremely important. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because you can have an algorithm that literally tells you anything you want it to tell you in an Excel sheet and data does drive, but there's nothing like having boots on the ground. And so like a lot of these vibe buyers, the people that have bought like, Inventory. I mean, Redfin was one of them, right? Like that was one of them that went south pretty fast. Zillow was another one, right? Like I think one of the ones that you're, that you're discussing. I think there is something to be said about that. 
hey, we still need boots on the ground information. Like what is really happening in this high density market? What is really happening in this localized market? And what are the people actually telling us? Because I would argue that probably where some of these people went wrong, right? Like you can literally look at any type of stats that you want, but like, what are the local people? What are the people that are actually boots on the ground telling you is actually happening in those markets? And yeah, I mean, they lost their shirt in some cases because they bet wrong on their Excel sheets and their algorithms. And I would yeah, argue yeah. It's probably going to be continued. Yeah, that's funny when you make your business decisions off. I can make a spreadsheet that looks amazing. It looks like a hockey stick. You know, it's like starts flat and goes shoots up. One of my first businesses that I did with a friend of mine, he was fantastic at spreadsheets. And so we made these wonderful spreadsheets and raised money. And the whole idea was, remember the uh, credit monitoring, like was very popular in 2009, especially after the crisis, monitor your credit. So we're like, oh, we should do this in Canada. We'll create a whole like credit monitor. We had to set up a TransUnion and and we had no idea how to get customers. I did not have a clue. And so we showed this to my wife and she's like, this is, it sounds like a terrible idea. Where are you going to get customers? Like, no, no, look at our spreadsheet. The spread, look, it doesn't lie. Look at how much money we're going to make. Sure yeah. enough, it just, I blew through a whole bunch of, what a catastrophe. So, you know, there is a reality of in this whole iBuyer thing, a lot of these guys are you know, losing their shirts. And the thing is, is that I feel like it's always easy to play with somebody else's money. So most of them have raised external money and- yeah. You know, when you're playing with somebody else's money, it's like, ah, well, you know, I can try this. But when it's your own money, like, you know, would you do that as a consumer? You're probably not going to make that bet very often if you're a real estate agent going, yeah, I'm going to buy this house at, you know, very close to market value. And there's very little wiggle room. If there's an error, I'm going to lose, you know, or I'm going to be stuck sitting on my money's tied up in this real estate that I had no intention of holding on to. So that's interesting. Is there any other kind of things or questions that we should chat about or you know, I always love our discussions and we go in all kinds of random directions. We had like six different topics. Any other things that you think people should be thinking about or you're paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a shameless plug, but I think now is the time for people to have, you know, the best advice. Like, look, here's the deal. Everybody that I've met, and you know this, I mean, you're in the business, right? Like everybody that I've met over the last 20 years has always said like, you know, I want the best rate. And listen, I've never met anyone that says that I want to pay the highest price, right? And pay the most for a mortgage, Right. But in this market, in markets like this, I think it's important to make sure that consumers know that you not only need the best rate, and I believe that every consumer deserves the best price, but they also deserve the best advice and ultimately mm-hmm. the best experience, right? And so who are the people around you? Who are the agents? Who are the professionals that you have around? Who are the financial advisors that are giving you the advice? I think it's important, man, for us to talk about like, hey, now is the time for you to surround yourself with people that actually know what they're doing. Your mom or your cousin's uncle that probably has done two, three transactions over the last two years. Probably not the right people. Over two, yeah, over the or even over the last 10 years. Like that, you know, it's funny that we take advice from people that don't take money advice from broke people and don't take real estate advice from people who are not in the business or mortgage, you know. So I completely agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, encouraging the listeners, right, to say, hey, surround yourself with the people that are moving. My my father-in-law is selling property where they live, right? And he asked, he's like, who should I hire? I said that, I mean, you got to hire the people that are moving the inventory. doesn't matter if you're friends, you know, with the broker owner of this company, if he hasn't sold real estate in the last 10 years, you're doing yourself a disservice. So surround yourself with people that are moving the inventory, surround yourself with people that are going to give you true advice, but also obviously give you a good experience overall. I think it's important, especially now. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you, Leo, man. Awesome. As always to chat with you. And, you know, as I said, I hope my variable rate mortgage will flatten out and go down at some point later on this year, even if it's in this last quarter of this year, I'd be happy with that. And we'll see what happens, but we'll be talking again. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to that conversation with Leo. Hopefully you got some ideas and insights into what's happening with the overall economy in the US. In this next segment, I talked to Ben McCabe from Bloom about the top five reasons a reverse mortgage file could be declined.
Hey, Ben, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott, good to be here. So, hey, what topic are we going to jump into today? Uh, yeah, Scott, so I mean, obviously we want to, you know, approve every deal that brokers send us, you know, that would be in a perfect world we would, but unfortunately that's just uh, not going to be possible, right? So we have to decline files in certain cases. And so I figured I'd talk about sort of the top five reasons why we have to decline files from time to time. Okay, awesome. So what would be the first reason, not in order of like what you see, but what's the first reason you see you have to decline a reverse mortgage file? Yeah. So one would be deals not meeting sort of basic qualifying criteria, right? So, you know, basic qualifying criteria for reverse mortgage, all homeowners are 55 plus, right? Homeowners are joint tenants on the property. It's their principal residence. It's not a farm. It's not under construction, right? It basically needs to be like a normal residence that the borrowers live in in Canada. You'd be shocked at some of the stuff that we've received for reverse mortgage uh, over time that didn't meet the- Well, give me an example of something that's like, this is clearly not- you know, yeah, like a couple of weeks ago, we got like an industrial property under construction. So that's obviously sort of that's not, somebody who's not, obviously not even they're just like da, 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 firing this thing off to everywhere, yeah, wasting everybody's time. Spray and pray. Yeah. I hope to God they don't work for me. If they do tell me and we'll go slap them on the hand. So no, no, uh, if they're at my brokerage, I want to know. Okay. So qualifying criteria, that would be the first. What would be the next thing that you'd see that would be a reason you guys would have to decline? Yeah. So too much existing mortgage, right? So we can lend up to 55%, up to 65% with the second. Up to 55% doesn't necessarily mean that like your client will get 55%, right? That would be somebody in their 80s typically who lives in a city. If your clients are like 59 and they live in a, you know, in a rural location, it's going to be something well below 55%. And so if they have like 70% loan to value, you know, mortgage against their house right now, that's going to be a tricky deal to do. Yeah, you won't be able to make the math make sense. Okay, so qualifying criteria, too much existing mortgage, what will be the next reason you guys may have to decline somebody? Yeah. So basically people that really have like no income, you know, or very little income, no proceeds from the reverse mortgage and no other savings or resources, right? So it's effectively, once we put the reverse mortgage in place, if there's just nothing there to be able to sustain, you know, the property obligations, the property tax insurance, be able to pay, you know, second mortgage interest to be able to pay other sort of debt service payments, and then have enough money left over to live. If there's nothing there for that, then, you know, we just see that deal really heading to a dead end in the near term. And it's not really a deal we'd want to get into. Right. Yeah. It goes back to, we had a previous show that we did where we talked about suitability that becomes not suitable because they're not going to be able to maintain the property. Probably they, they may need to sell and look at some other options. That's right. Or some other, maybe not sell, but some other option, whether it's moving with family, have family moving with them, like something. Exactly. Um, yeah. Qualifying criteria, too much existing mortgage, no income or cash to sustain obligations. What would be the next one? Yeah. So the next one is kind of a really bad appraisal, right? So we don't need clients to be living in a palace, obviously, but with a reverse mortgage, we're taking that home as security and we're not getting paid any interest, right? We're not getting regular payments. So it's, you know, it's especially important that the client knows how to take care of their home, right? Again, you'd be shocked at some of the stuff. So give me non-specific names or regions, but give me an example of like something that you'd see in appraisal. and be like, okay, that's going to be a deal breaker that we saw just out of curiosity. Oh yeah. Just, you know, mold damage. If it looks obvious that the borrowers- are They can't of, maintain what they have now. It's only yeah, going to get and, worse. You know, yeah. If it looks obvious that they're sort of hoarders and, you know, we just, we've seen some pretty crazy appraisals. Let's just put it that right. way. Yeah, um, yeah, that, and, that would make sense. Know, so, you know, word to the wise, it just doesn't hurt to encourage your clients to tidy up before the appraiser comes. Right. And, and we're not talking about, this is not necessarily a value of the property thing. It's more of a general condition. It's, it's kind of like, hey, this, yeah. yeah, my brother, who's a realtor in Calgary, he somehow stumbled into this listing for a mobile home and he was selling it for 25 grand. And I'm like, I got to come and see what a $25,000 mobile home looks like. 
And it was pretty rough. I was like, wow. And, you know, I told him, you need to get to that market. This is not a market you want to stay in. Absolutely. It's a market. It's for some people. But I'm like, you don't want to do more of these because you'll get more of them. And this is not a market I would want to be in. But anyway, interesting. Okay. So qualifying criteria, existing mortgage, maybe too high. Cash, not being able to sustain obligations. The appraisal showing the property is not being properly taken care of. And it doesn't get easier, by the way, as you get older. It's not like all of a sudden you're going to wake up one day and be like, I think I'm going to take care of this property. It's going to get less taken care of over time, right? Over the next decade. What would be the last sort of thing that would potentially could be a deal killer for you? Yeah, so the last bucket is what we call sketchiness, right? So, you know, obviously we're dealing with seniors, with older folks, right? So we need to be extra careful and really never get ourselves into a situation where there could be you know, for example, elder abuse or in a situation where the client doesn't necessarily, you know, understand what they're doing or what they're getting into, right? So, you know, things that we would look out for is sort of a really big draw with no logical use of proceeds. You know, if we have a son or daughter who's calling us nonstop asking when the money is coming, there's been tons of new credit taken out recently with no clear reason. These things would all fall into, you know, this bucket we call sort of overall sketchiness. You know, we declined to file last week for reasons like that. It's just we need to be extra careful. So we like to steer clear of deals like that where we just don't really understand what's going on. You get this vibe. You're like, something's off here, you know? Yeah, and, exactly uh, right. There's a vibe. Yeah. And what I think about that is like, I think that first off, who would do that to their parents? You know, that seems pretty low. But I also have to recognize that in their mind, they probably think they'll pay it back. They'll probably be like, oh, I'm just going to use my parents' money now because I got this, you know, we're going to put money into crypto or whatever. Who knows what they're thinking? But they tend to be not realistic about the consequences of what they're doing most people are not you know nefarious in like more yeah, like in their mind they think that everything's going to turn out fine but it's probably not gonna is what i would say is going on there yeah no that's totally fair these are just deals we like to just steer clear of yeah you don't want to touch them okay so any last thoughts on you know reasons that you may have to decline a reverse mortgage yeah just to summarize you know for brokers i think just know your basic qualifying criteria obviously you know reverse mortgage works well if there's some mortgage debt but not you know a fully sort of leveraged property Borrowers will need to be able to sort of sustain homeownership over time. Obviously, we're taking the house as security. So the house, we need to be confident in, you know, in the condition of the house. And, and we just need to be comfortable that the deal makes sense for the borrower. Right. That's awesome. So if you guys are listening to this, you can check out Ben's company, Bloom Finance at bloomfin.ca. They're fantastic at helping you help your clients with reverse mortgages. And I know you guys have been growing like crazy since you guys launched last couple of years. And so congrats to you guys. And Ben, thanks again for chatting with me, man. And thanks for sharing about some of the reasons people may decline. And also brokers can just pay attention to this and be like, hey, wait a second, you know, something's off. So I think that's great. Thanks, Ben. All right, thanks again for listening to this episode with Leo. Two quick things. First, if you're listening to this and you want to go back and keyword search all of our past episodes, go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com, set up a free power search account, and you can literally keyword search all of our past episodes and it jumps right to the moment that any word is said. So that's one thing. The second thing is that if you know of any other guests that would be amazing for me to have, especially if they have like in Leo's case, you know, if they're somewhere in the US in particular, I'm really enjoying these conversations because I feel like it's a little bit of some early warning stuff for us. And so if you know somebody, shoot me an email, scott.ilovemortgagebroking.com. Maybe we'll have them on the show. Thanks again. And I will see you on the next episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.